Please listen carefully. Hey folks, this is a podcast that I recorded with Rob Wolf back in April of 2021 uh, and I'm just releasing now. For those of you who know Rob Wolf, uh, he really needs no introduction. Uh, for those of you who don't know him though, um, Rob co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. Uh, he holds a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's a former California state powerlifting champion and was part of the Discovery Channel's I Caveman series where he took down a 650-pound elk with an atlatl, uh, which is a hand-thrown spear. I went to one of Rob's first Paleo Solution seminars. This was back in like 2009-2010, and he really got me going down this very deep rabbit hole of nutrition and how a lot of the conventional wisdom out there is actually wrong and has gotten us to this place where so many people have diabetes and heart disease. And the, the biggest thing I like about Rob Wolf is that he is willing to change his mind. Um, he will take a stance, he'll prevent evidence for something nutrition related, but if later on he finds out he's wrong, then he is totally willing to admit it. And not a lot of people in this space uh, are willing to do that. Um, so it was uh, an honor to be able to interview him. Uh, we start off talking about Element, which is uh, a new product that he has released in the last couple of years, uh, which is basically designed to replace Gatorade in terms of being an actual healthy electrolyte uh, or combination of electrolytes for hydration. Uh, but then we also get into meat and sustainability uh, and how a lot of people, how they think about sustainability uh, might not include the whole picture. So. For those of you who like to geek out on nutrition, uh, this one is for you. Enjoy my interview with Rob Wolf. All right, guys. We have uh, Rob Wolf here on Kana Podcast. And uh, for the two people maybe in the world that uh, do not know who you are, uh, why don't you give a, a little background as to um, your your upbringing and, and your, I know you had some health issues growing up and that kind of led you down this you know nutrition path. Um, so yeah, why don't you give a little background? Sure. I'll try to keep it brief. As I get older and older, I start doing the wandering old man thing. So I'm getting very good at, at not being concise, but I have always been interested in health and human performance. Uh, I was a teenage uh, California state powerlifting champion a very, very long time ago, uh, but was raised in a family that was you know, pretty unhealthy. Both my parents smoked, my dad drank, uh, both of them were type two diabetics pretty early in, in the, you know, their lives. Um, and I always suspected that there was, you know, something you could do diet and lifestyle wise that would leave you in a, a better situation than what they had. Uh, that kind of exploration led me down first a vegetarian and then a, a vegan based diet when I was doing my undergrad in biochemistry. And for some people, I think that stuff works great. For me, it was a disaster. And it was honestly like a, a confluence of multiple things. Uh, I think just at a metabolic physiological level, a vegan diet isn't a good fit for me. Like if I lived at the equator and I had like zero stress, I could probably be close to that and maybe pull it off. But uh, at the time, I was a grad student living in Seattle, um, a, a basement apartment with a, a ceiling like barely above my head. Um, I, I would get up before the sun came up. I would come home after the sun went down. I remember getting my vitamin D levels checked at that time, and it was like 11, which is barely above 
you know, like mm. dying from it. So it was, it was pretty terrible. Um, so all this stuff came together and I ended up with a uh, ulcerative colitis. And, uh, this was at the age of about 26, 27. And I was looking at entering either medical school or a PhD program and I knew enough about ulcerative colitis and kind of the the conventional treatments around that, that I knew it was bad. Like, you know, surgery was going to be bad. It was just going to lead into, all, you know, a lifetime of problems. The immunosuppressant drugs are not good. Uh, they, they can save your life. I don't want to say they're not good, but, it, you know, it's... Uh, you're you're increasing your cancer risk. Your likelihood of dying from some sort of a secondary infection uh, increases dramatically. So it was just a, a wasn't a great scenario. And for somebody that's like 27, I, I'm about 165, 170 pounds right now. I was 125, 130 pounds at this low ebb because my my malabsorption issues, like everything that I ate, just came out the other end uh, largely unchanged and. I was pretty desperate and the, this idea of ancestral health or, or, or paleo type eating kind of got into my head in this weird circuitous way. And I did some research on it. And what was interesting, there was very little material available around 1998, which is when I, I, I first started thinking about this, but there was a little bit, you know, the, what was available, uh, really looked at, um, GI and autoimmune related health as it, as it kind of relates to this gene diet mismatch that there were a bunch of these foods that were kind of evolutionarily novel that, uh, agriculture has been really a huge boon for humanity in a lot of ways, but there was also some trade-offs, you know, and if there's one thing to understand about biology, people get really, um, kind of religiously dogmatic. They're like, paleo is the only way to eat or keto is the only way to eat or vegan is the only way to eat, but, or, or a whole host of things, you know, like high intensity interval training is the only way to do things or, you, you know, whatever the deal is. But in biology, there's just always trade-offs. If you're super fast twitch, you're not going to be a great marathon runner. If you are super slow twitch, even if you're six foot five, you're probably not going to be a great basketball player. Like, you, you know, and it, it, it's just, it's, just the the way that stuff plays out. And so within this kind of uh, evolutionary perspective, what I discovered was that uh, a lot of people end up having these GI related and autoimmune related issues. And so I was super sick. I was really desperate, uh, tried a kind of a low carb paleo type diet. And for me, it was, it was nothing short of amazing. Like it, it definitely saved my life. Um, improve my life. And it's been 22 years now of just tinkering and iterating around that to try to gain an additional few percentage points around things. And it was right around that time that I, I was also poking around on the internet and I found this kind of weird workout called CrossFit. And I started doing that with my friend, Dave Warner. He's a retired Navy SEAL and probably within about three months, we had about 12, 15 people that we were training out of his garage. And we reached out to the Glassmans who founded CrossFit. And we were like, hey, we love this stuff. We're, we want to open a gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they were like, yeah, go be achieved. Do that. And what was funny is, uh, so I ended up leaving Seattle not long after that and opening what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate. But the Seattle gym, CrossFit North, was the first affiliate gym in the world my gym down in, in uh, Chico was the fourth affiliate gym. I want to say both of us were open maybe as five years, four years before we had an affiliate contract. Like it, it was just 
handshake <laughs> deal, total wild west. But it was yep. interesting in that being involved with CrossFit at that early stage, um, both in my my gym specifically. But I, I think you and I first first met. You mentioned when when I did a gig in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, but. I got to interact with just tens of thousands of people and kind of figure out what, what works, what doesn't, what messaging is really effective. You know, like certain things make sense in my head, but when I try to articulate that to people, when you get this feedback, you're like, okay, I'm not making sense on this. And so it was a, a really cool opportunity to be able to then write the, the two New York times bestsellers I've had. And then also uh, sacred cow, which is a more recent book that I've, I've written on sustainability, um, I think we're going to talk about Element a little bit, this electrolyte uh, product that, that I put together with some good friends. But I guess, it, you know, 30,000 foot level, that's kind of been my my career, um, trying to look at all this stuff from a, a largely ancestral health perspective, but also trying to learn how to um, ever simplify and, and also uh, uh, just stay flexible with things. Like I've had a, a good number of pretty deeply held thoughts on certain things that proved to be completely wrong. And, uh, I've, I've learned over time to be a little bit more circumspect about things and try to, uh, couch them in terms of, well, this may apply to this situation, but not all situations. I definitely had a period of time early in my career where everything that worked for me, I assumed would work for everybody else. And I think that that's a pretty common, you know, process. And then through the course of breaking people and not really serving them that well, I figured out, oh, you know, not everybody thrives on a low carb diet. Some people do need not just some carbs, but a lot of carbs and not everybody is gluten intolerant and, you know, on and on and on. So it's been a cool experience. I've been really, uh, really fortunate to, to kind of be where I am and at the timing and whatnot. Yeah, I don't know if I was uh, actually one of your first six listeners, but I like to think of myself as one of the nice. first six, uh, yeah. which was you know your old running running joke uh, with you and Greg. I just had Greg on the podcast uh, oh, awesome. a couple of weeks ago, but um, uh, one of the things that uh, I think makes me follow you probably the most out of anybody is the fact that you are willing to change your mind because there's so many gurus out there and experts out there, and they may be an expert, but um, Sometimes that ego gets in there, and and that um, inability to think, you know, beyond just themselves and their own experiences, and you know, uh, whether it's you know fish oil recommendations or if it's you know vegetarian vegan issues or whatever the case may be, you're willing to say, look, I was I was uh, not so much even wrong, but my my thinking has evolved. In, mm -hmm. Right. Um, but that's what science is, right? Like science is just an evolution of information. And the more information we have, the better we can make decisions. And there's a whole rabbit hole we can go down that there. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let, let's talk about Element because um, uh, I, so Element is a, an electrolyte that I've been taking that it, it, you had uh, created with some other other folks. Um, so maybe talk about the evolution of um, getting into business with these guys what you realized about electrolytes versus, um, let's say the, the super common thought of, you know, well, Gatorade will take care of my electrolytes, you know, um, in conventional wisdom and, um, and, and what that all is about. Yeah. It, it's, uh, man, there's a lot to unpack there if I, I, know, if I, I can know. do it some justice, <laughs> but, uh, so here's an example of, um, I didn't have enough beginner's mind at the beginning of this, and it could have saved me a lot of suffering. So I mm. 
I'm a decent biochemist. I, I, for whatever reason, like metabolism and organic chemistry, like it just stuck. Like I, I was able to see this stuff in my head and I'm, I'm pretty good at that. And because of this need for kind of a ketogenic diet, like I, I think there was kind of a, a, a very potent personal self-interest in it. So like I, you know, I kind of dove in deep on it and I, I had a pretty good steeping with that and uh, have always cognitively felt best with a, a low carb or ketogenic diet. I can lift weights and do pretty well with that. I can do some low intensity cardio, but things like CrossFit or jujitsu, I just got my brown belt in jujitsu and, you know, it's like, I just didn't have this low gear, you know, in those things. So I kind of struggle and I would, I tinkered with uh, some pre-workout carbs and peri-workout carbs. And it was really hard to hit it because I never knew day to day, like, was it going to be a group of like 22 year old police officers who have no neck and they're division one wrestlers and, or was it a bunch of old beat up has-beens like me, you know? And so it was this really variable thing. And I, I came across some guys online, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, who are the founders of Keto Gains. And they're just amazing dudes, like really, really smart, really passionate. And what I noticed is they had this massive community that was probably 80, 85% women and like 35 to like 60. And it's funny because all the imaging is like red and orange and black and like, you know, dude. Mm -hmm. And then all the people that, not all, but a bunch of the people they had were, you know, like house moms and grandmothers and stuff. And the results that they were getting with these women, it was just amazing. And what really struck me is that oftentimes folks are warned that low carb diets can be really dangerous for women in particular and like perimenopausal and like, oh man, there's thyroid issues and there's adrenal issues and all this stuff. I was seeing none of that in their community. And I was like, what the heck are these guys doing? And so I started kind of kind of creeping them, hanging out on their their forums and whatnot, and kind of contributing where I could. Eventually, they invited me to one of their their first conferences that they put on, and I got to speak there and hang out with them, and just kind of weaselled and infiltrated my way into their their community, and eventually uh, uh, shook them down for a little bit of advice on what I was up to. I'm like, hey, you know, I have this problem with the low gear glycolytic activity. You have people doing jujitsu. You have people doing CrossFit. Like, how are you doing that? What's up? And, uh, you know, can you look at what I'm doing? And they looked at it and they're like, well, you, you look good, but you look probably deficient in sodium and electrolytes in general and sodium in particular. And uh, because I'm a biochemist and can get full of my own shit sometimes, then I, I was like, oh, no, no, no. I salt my food. I'm good. And I could just, I, thinking back, I remember seeing kind of an eye roll on their part. They're very gracious, very kind people. But thinking back now, I'm like, oh, they've heard this literally 10,000 times. Like they've, been, they've had this same conversation. The person's like, no, I salt my food. I'm good. And so I kept struggling and flailing for another year at least. And, and uh, they were patient with me. And then one day they were like, no, man, really? Like weigh and measure your food, put it into something like chronometer so that it, it not only details protein, carbs, fat, but also your electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, you know? And I did that and they were like, you should be getting at least five grams of sodium a day. And it may even be double that what you need. And I was getting less than half of that. And I was like, so this is the problem. They're like, yeah, this is the problem. So I upped my sodium 
And it literally was like a light switch was flipped. Like it, it sounds, it's so self-serving because I'm a co-founder of the company and, you know, I'm going to make money from it and all that stuff. But sure. it, it was just, it was like magic, you know? And when you step back a little bit and you think about every nerve impulse we have, every thought we generate, every muscle twitch we, we produce, sodium potassium pumps are the things that drive this. And I've been noodling on this a lot and, and thinking about like the, the biological parameters that are really tightly regulated in our body. pH is maybe the most tightly regulated. Like if a pH goes up a little bit or down a little bit, you will die. Like it's really tightly regulated. And if it starts going sideways, like really bad things happen. I would argue that the neck, the second most tightly regulated system in our body is probably electrolytes. Because if we get that sodium-potassium ratio wrong, particularly if sodium goes too low, then you will get sick and or die. And it's interesting that over-consuming sodium, your body can deal with that pretty easily. Like if there's adequate water, you, your kidneys will sort and shuffle that and you will pee out the excess sodium. But if you are deficient in sodium, you can die from that rather easily. And we've seen that with... Um, you know, some of these recommendations of drinking like eight, eight ounce glasses of water, or like mm -hmm. super hydrating for, for physical activity, you know, like marathons and whatnot. I, not that long ago, it was kind of unheard of for somebody to die at a football double day due to hyponatremia, low sodium and like the brain swelling and the convulsions and whatnot that, that occur from, from excess potassium, inadequate sodium. But that's become a pretty common thing. Like virtually every marathon or Ironman, somebody gets hospitalized. Occasionally somebody dies from hyponatremia, low sodium levels. It's never dehydration. It's never total body water lost that's the problem. It is always an electrolyte imbalance. And so, and I know I'm kind of bouncing around all, all, all over the place here, but it, it was a a really interesting eye opener for me personally, that this was such a, an important concept, particularly within the low carb kind of ketogenic space. But as we started looking more broadly, it was like anybody that shifts from a more processed diet, which is where people generally get the bulk of their sodium to a low processed diet, you know, whether it's Mediterranean or zone or whatever, usually the bulk of the sodium disappears from the diet and people end up reporting really similar problems. They have a lot of lethargy, brain fog. Um, they'll get muscle cramping. Usually when people start experiencing cramping, the first place that they go is magnesium and potassium, which ironically is kind of potentially worsening the situation. And there's an ironic feature to this that if people get adequate sodium, the kidneys will sort things out such that the potassium and magnesium are kind of okay. But if you don't get adequate sodium, the, the kidneys never really get ahead of that. They start excreting massive amounts of, of potassium, trying to re-equilibrate the, the extracellular sodium with the intracellular potassium, and people can die from that. It's hard, hard to get out ahead of all that stuff. So that was really the genesis of this whole thing. And it, it's kind of funny. We um, These guys knew this for a long time. And like any newbie, when they find out a new toy, like I was super excited and all fired up. I'm like, dude, sodium fixes like everything. And they're like, yes, yeah, you idiot. It, it, it's super important for a lot of stuff. And so we put together this thing called a keto aid, which is basically a, a make it yourself recipe 
this much sodium chloride, this much potassium chloride, this much uh, uh, magnesium, and uh, add some stevia and lemon juice and brew it up and go. And we had like a half million downloads of this thing. Like it was really popular. It helped a lot of people. But then folks started tagging us on social media and they're like, this, the keto weight is awesome. But when I was traveling and going through TSA, the three bags of white powder were a problem, you know? And, and so we're like, uh, I wonder if there's an opportunity for kind of a, a convenience play on this thing. And we started putting our heads together about how we would, would formulate it. And uh, uh, the God honest truth, the way that we put this thing together, the first flavor we launched with was citrus salt. And it tastes great. It's a solid flavor, but we formulated it. So if this thing failed as an electrolyte beverage, we could pivot and make it a margarita beverage. And so it, it you know, margarita exactly. base. So, yep. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the kind of long drawn out story of, of element and it's, it's cool. We started off with this kind of paleo keto low carb diet being kind of like the center of the bullseye. And that's definitely still a big percentage of the crowd that we serve, but like breastfeeding moms, some, some women who are like in the exclusive pumping communities, we started getting tagged on social media and they were, they, they would show, they had like a, a bottle with just like a tiny amount of milk that they pumped yesterday or the day before. And they're like, this is what I did today after doing the element. And it was like four full bottles. And this just went like wildfire within the, the breastfeeding mom scene. And when you think about that whole story, breast milk production is entirely tied to hydration status and hydration isn't just water. It's the sodium and the other constituents, potassium, magnesium, and whatnot. And just drinking more water won't necessarily increase fluid volume in the, in the breast milk. It, it can actually be deleterious to it. So we had some really remarkable buy-in in that scene. And then the uh, POTS community, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, it mainly affects kids, but it can affect adults. And basically these folks, for whatever reason, when they go from seated to standing, they get a hypovolemic situation where they're, they're not getting enough uh, cardiac output to keep the blood going to their brain and they can fall over and mm -hmm. pass out. And, and uh, you know, significant head trauma can be a, a result of this. And these folks know that they need more sodium. So this was interesting in that we didn't have to there was very minimal education about the importance and the benefit of adequate sodium within these folks. What they were just stoked about was that it's hard sometimes to get that much sodium into kids, you know, and, and so these things taste good and they're really convenient and portable and everything. But the, the long and short of that is that it's been interesting that we've been getting some really interesting buy-in from like special forces communities, police, military, fire, but also these kind of wacky peripheral health concerns that seem to really benefit from increased sodium intake. So it definitely benefits folks, um, kind of your initial population or the people who are going lower carb, mm -hmm. you know, paleo-ish, whatever the case may be, because they needed, you know, to basically, uh, up their, their sodium, their electrolyte levels, um, versus processed foods. Is this something that you would recommend pretty much anybody experiment with because at the end of the day it's something that um you know everybody should be taking a look at in terms of proper hydration i think anybody eating a mainly whole food based diet would likely benefit from this if yeah. one is still eating a mainly processed food diet if one is um known to be hypertensive and and carrying like uh 
abdominal adiposity, like we have these signs and symptoms of insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, they don't need it. Like they absolutely don't need it. What they need is to clean up their diet. Mm -hmm. And then when they, the ironic thing is once they clean up their diet, then they probably will need some sort of sodium supplementation and by no means needs to be element like bouillon cubes or, you know, whatever. But what we find is that it's hard to just salt your food and and get to an adequate level with that. Like you really do almost ironically need to at least drink some of the the sodium throughout the course of the day or you get some foods like salami or olives that you know like 10 olives or a gram of sodium so those are a, a wonderful way to get both the mm, sodium gotcha. but also the magnesium and potassium but you know anybody that's in that possible uh insulin resistant metabolic syndrome kind of process like they really don't they need to clean up their diet first. Like, uh, uh, adding more sodium to that mm-hmm. situation is probably not going to be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, yeah. Citrus salt is my favorite. I have it every day. Um, nice. the chocolate is really nice to, in a cup of warm water as a hot chocolate. My kids mm-hmm. love it. Um, we'll do like a half pack to each of them. Um, uh, and I, and I just got sample of, of samples of the new watermelon flavor. So that tastes really good. It's like yep. a liquid Jolly Rancher. Yeah. Um, right now they come in single servings. Um, so what's your, so what's your recommendation? Um, one to three packs of that per day for average people. Oh man, this is like the hardest question to answer. And it kind of sucks because like dosing is probably like the, you know, the most important, you know, how many times a week should I back squat or deadlift? You know, like, like dose response curves are, are super important. Um, the, the main takeaway is that if you're eating a largely whole food, unprocessed diet, um, probably about five grams of total sodium per day, is where we want to get most folks. If you're lower carb, it's it's at least that. And what's interesting is this depends on the person and the situation, like very hot, humid environments dramatically increase uh, sodium need. Interestingly, like high altitude, cold, and dry air really increases uh, sodium and, and hydration needs. So it will depend a lot, but Even within the American Council of Sports Medicine recommendations, and this is assuming folks eating an otherwise high-carb diet, like that's that's kind of baked in the cake with these folks, they recommend that athletes, uh, uh, high work output, plus heat or humidity, starting at 7 to 10 grams of sodium per day. And this is like the mainstream medical outlets. Uh, We've we've had some conversations with uh, NHL teams. Some of these guys, and they're big dudes, so you have to scale this too. If you're a small female, this this may, you know, scale differently. But some of these guys will lose 10 pounds of water in the course of a game or a hard practice. And they may have a 10 grams of sodium lost during the course of that that practice. So wow. trying to pin down so it, it, what I'm trying to do is like provide a bracketing. Like for most people, somewhere in the mix of your diet daily probably a minimum of five grams is good. And that doesn't mean that you need to do five sticks of element. What it means is you get a variety of whole food based stuff. You salt things, you do some olives, you do some salami, you do some salt rich foods. And then if you, when you look at that, and particularly if you're experiencing some symptoms like some lethargy, brain fog, or in particular cramping, cramping is actually showing that you're very far down this, this hyponatremic process. Like cramping is kind of late in the game, 
But any of those things are a pretty good indicator that you need some additional sodium. Uh, pickle juice is a great additional option. Like, you know, if people like pickles and they just mm-hmm. eat the pickles, have the pickle juice, you know, shoot some of that down. And the intro- that, the was, really- uh, that was like the Patriot's secret, secret sauce. Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, what's, what's kind of cool about this is that if sodium deficiency, electrolyte deficiency is really the thing that's your problem, the feedback cycle is almost immediate. You know, uh, my good friend Kirk Parsley is a retired Navy SEAL. He's a sleep expert. He has a product called uh, Sleep Remedy. And the thing is awesome. And the feedback cycle is fairly quick, but like you have to take it, go home, go to bed, take it. You wake up the next day and you're like, wow, I feel better. Like I had all these vivid dreams and I, I feel really rested today. Whereas with with element or or just good electrolyte management, you feel better within like five minutes. And it, it's literally like it's like a light switch kind of gets turned on. So um trying to recap all that, I think most folks would benefit from being at about at least five grams of sodium total per day, again, from all dietary sources. And some people may need double that. And within that keto gains community. They've seen some people that are three times out that they're north of uh, 15 grams of total sodium per day. These are folks that are real high work output. They tend to be um, super sweaters. So they they like are really they they sweat a lot relative to their their peers and they seem to shed a disproportionately high amount of sodium. So there's some and we've really never seen anybody need more than that under any circumstance, but that's a pretty good bracket somewhere between five to 10 most likely, but be aware that some people may need even more than that, depending on the situation. Got it. What would you say to someone who has the the conventional wisdom of, um, or thinking of, you know, salt is bad for the heart? It, you know, it's, it's interesting and this is a tough one to, to unpack, but Hypertension is definitely a really bad thing for cardiovascular disease. Uh, There is no doubt it is. And I honestly, over the course of time, I've put even more, I don't know about more emphasis, depending on how you look at this stuff. Like some people will say that cholesterol levels are the driver of cardiovascular disease, but it's not an airtight thing. And, And some folks who much smarter than myself have propose this idea of the the vascular endothelial damage model where something damages the vascular endothelium. And then once it's damaged, then those cholesterol particles may end up playing a really important role in the way that that whole thing progresses. And one of the most common things to damage the vascular endothelium is non-laminar flow. It's where flow goes through the, instead of things being smooth, it becomes turbulent and it kind of beats up the vascular endothelium. And nothing feeds into non-laminar flow quite like hypertension. So high blood pressure is a nasty situation. And and what's interesting about that is it's understood in the literature, but not well articulated out out in, in broader circles. What constitutes hypertension when we look at this from an ancestral health model may be much lower than what we would otherwise think. So usually people will will look at their blood pressure. They have systolic over uh, diastolic like uh 125 over 70 or something like that. 120 over 70. Um, that lower number, the, the bottom number much above 70, 75 starts causing some low grade kidney dysfunction and it damages the, the glomerular structures in the kidneys. And this isn't super well understood. So 
I do think that hypertension is a really big deal, but the interesting thing about this, we've had lots of randomized controlled trials where they, they stick people in a metabolic ward, they weigh and measure all their food, they know exactly what they're doing, and they put these folks on low or effectively zero sodium diets, and it doesn't really modify hypertension. It'll drop it a little bit, but not really that much. And the the reason for that is that I believe the underlying mechanism of all this is actually hyperinsulinemia. It's el- chronically elevated blood insulin levels from overeating in general and possibly overeating refined carbohydrate. And the, a, another interesting observation is that one of the, the side effects of low-carb diets is that people see their blood pressure plummet. And this is also why we need to, to supplement sodium for these people. And if you go, if you are placed on a medically supervised ketogenic diet and the dietitian knows what he or she is doing, they will make sure that you get at least five grams of sodium a day if you're on a, a medically supervised ketogenic diet. And I think this is something that is broadly lost in the pop diet culture. I certainly missed it. Like I, I wasn't afraid of sodium, but I wasn't, I wasn't as vigorous in recommending adequate sodium levels as I was protein, carbs, fat, you know, recommendations. So, um, the, the, the fear of sodium is tied into some correlation that, uh, bulk of the foods that people eat that are high in sodium are usually highly processed and eating a lot of highly processed foods seems to feed into this hyperinsulinemic state. But again, once people pull back these highly processed foods, not only do they tend to begin losing weight and normalize their insulin levels, but they're also removing the primary source of sodium in their diet most often times. So, and this is something that's real easy. Like if folks are super concerned about it, get an inexpensive blood pressure cuff off of Amazon. Like you can get a really good quality one for 15 or 20 bucks and just check it a couple of times a day. Like do it before exercise, do it after exercise, um, do it before uh, electrolyte supplementation, do it afterwards. And if you see some excursions that you don't like that, you, you know, or, or it, it under ideal circumstances, you really shouldn't see that much of a change one way or the other. And that's telling us that, you are metabolically healthy, not insulin resistant, and the sodium isn't causing a disproport, you know, an overly uh, significant rise in blood pressure in that circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, very much a, a correlation versus causation thing going Absolutely. on with yeah. kind of your conventional thinking. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears and talk about uh, meat and sustainability. Um, you and uh, Diana Rogers, who is a dietitian, uh, came out with a book and also a documentary um, or short film about um, uh, eating meat, um, sustainability. And she actually had just recently posted um, uh, something on Instagram that I thought would be a, a nice way for us to kind of go through the, the main topics of this. Uh, so her post... Uh, had three points um, where she said, where it said meat is unhealthy. And then she gave a little explanation. Meat is unsustainable and meat is unethical. Mm-hmm. So I thought those, that would be a nice way to kind of walk through um, your thinking and your research on this, because I think uh, with climate change and with a whole host of things, um, you know, I've, I've been following both of your yeah, guys stuff and, and, so, so I just feel like this message needs to be amplified um, because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. So let's start with the first one. Meat is unhealthy. Uh, what would be your response to that? 
Yeah, and just really quickly for some background, we've been noodling on this project uh, for the better part of 10 years. And it was about five years ago that we really started outlining and collecting information around this. We did our first talk related to sustainability in 2013 together. And then I did my my personally first public debate commentary around uh, uh, grass-centric food systems potentially being super beneficial for for everything back in 2006. So it's it's definitely been something I've been noodling on for a long time. And when we were sitting down to think about the book, we had noticed over the course of time that this uh, this discussion is what we, we called it vegan whack-a-mole. So somebody would say meat is unhealthy and we would start unpacking that thing. And they would say, well, then it's super injurious to the environment. And then we would start unpacking that one. And they'd say, well, it's unethical to eat animals. And so each time you start answering one of these questions, then people will kind of change the discussion and and keep things moving along. So we knew that Mm -hmm. these were the three things that we had to address. And when we started off initially, we thought that we were going to tackle the ethical part first. And what was interesting is that as we progressed along, we actually noticed that there were some interesting characteristics about both the health story and also the sustainability story that really changed the whole ethical story. And if I'm not losing my mind, I'll be able to tie all that stuff back to together and make some sense of it. But when mm-hmm, we got mm-hmm. in and, and looked at the, the health claims, like almost every day we, we see something to the effect that, you know, eating an egg is as bad for your health as a pack a day smoking habit. And it comes from like Harvard School of Public Health. And, you know, it looks very like buttoned up and, and, and compelling. But when you really dig into the research that's produced under these circumstances, it is just about uniformly a, a epidemiological in nature and kind of retrospective. So they, they, offer people to fill out food frequency questionnaires, basically reporting, what do you remember eating yesterday, last month, last year? One of the the larger studies that came out recently, it asked people to recall what they had eaten 12 years ago. And, and what we really understand from this type of research is that people have terrible memories. And a, a good example of this is that there have been analyses of uh, crime events where the crime was videotaped. So it's pretty objectively documented, say like, you know, four different video cameras. They get the whole, you know, like a car crash or like a mugging or what have you. And then they get a bunch of people who saw the event. And then you compare what they reported of the event relative to the objective documentation via video. And it's pretty clear that people suck at recalling information like this, you know, like it, it, it's just kind of crazy. It, it mm-hmm. kind of qu- make, makes you question like, you know, like expert witnesses at all or, or what have you. But it, it's kind of interesting. So people suck at recollection. There's also this deal that people lie a lot, like they want to give the answers that they think that the, the you know, the researchers want. So the the, you know, the information is inaccurate under those circumstances too. But even so people smarter than myself have made the case that there is more error in these research papers than signal. 
that there's literally nothing of value in it. And and people can argue back and forth on that. And actually, statistically, you can kind of prove that that this stuff has more error than signal. But this is the thing that drives nutritional research for the most part. 95% of nutritional research are these retrospective uh, type type food frequency questionnaire studies. So you have to kind of work within the bounds of- they also of, seem to point to the same six or 12 studies, right? Yes. Yeah. It's very, like very just, much- It's all incest. It, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It's super well said. But so I, I want to make the case that this stuff is probably garbage, but nobody in mainstream nutritional research believes it's garbage. So you have to lay it. That truth, that may in fact be a truth, but we can't really operate with that. So we have to operate with, okay, let's say that this stuff is accurate. It's actually true. So one of the uh, most often cited pieces is that consuming a pretty significant amount of red and or processed meat every day, will increase one's likelihood of developing colon cancer, as an example. So everyone in a westernized society has a background probability of about 5% for developing colon cancer throughout some point in their life. Like this is just, if you live in a westernized society, there, there's, there's just this about 5% likelihood of developing it. If we give the benefit of the doubt to this research and we say that it's actually accurate and there is some signal here and that you eat red or processed meat every day of your life, throughout your whole life, then your risk of developing colon cancer goes from 5% to 6%. But the way that that gets reported, it, it, so those are absolute risks, which are really the things that we, we should be mm -hmm. uh, brokering in. The way that that gets reported, though, is that red meat consumption increases uh, uh, colon cancer risk by 20%. Because the difference between five and six is 18%. And then they round up a little bit to 20%. Mm -hmm. So this is super. And this mm -hmm. is like literally every one of these pieces does something along this line. So again, at the very beginning of this story, we see dubious credibility around the notion that this there is any valuable information in this at all. There's all kinds of you know, problematic associations between academia and industry and all that type of stuff. Same could be said related to animal husbandry also, but like there, there's some dubious characteristics, whether or not the information is valid. If the information is valid, then even based around their best information, this, this statistical data that is tortured to make this look as bad as possible, it's a difference between 5% and 6% but it gets reported in a way that makes it look like this kind of massive difference. And this is kind of across the board. And when we, uh, there are some other things like the healthy user bias, like uh, some of the advocates of this type of research will promise you that they are able to statistically account for, you know, smokers versus non-smokers and all this other type of stuff. And it, it, it's really not possible to do that. Like we can approximate, but it, it's certainly not perfect. A really interesting uh, study was done where they did this same type of process, but they rolled it out within the, the confines of people who only shop at health food stores. And so they compared meat eaters or, or omnivores to vegetarians and vegans within that context. And what was interesting about that is in general, people who shop at health food stores are generally healthier across the board. 
They have healthier lifestyle. They tend to smoke less. They don't drink as much alcohol. And what was interesting there was that the meat eaters had lower all-cause mortality than the, the vegetarians and vegans under that circumstance. Now we can flip this back around and say, well, this is still the same type of garbage research that, that, you know, is generally done. And there, there is some truth to that, but it's Mm -hmm. interesting that when we start adjusting for these confounders, then there isn't this like massive association between animal product consumption and all these different, you know, supposed uh, health problems. And then we still have this other piece when we pull back a little bit and just look at the ancestral health model there are folks in non-Westernized societies that eat both large amounts of meat products and small amounts of meat products, but uniformly they have lower rates of chronic degenerative diseases relative to Westernized populations until they start adopting our kind of broken food habits. So this is another, you know, it's kind of a natural experiment. It's a, it's an indirect way to kind of get at that stuff. And Another piece that that will tie into the ethics is that when we really dug into this information, vegetarian and vegan moms and kids' health are very, very poor. It's very difficult to get these folks adequate nutrition. The the nutrient deficiencies are just rampant. The protein deficiencies are are rampant. And this this is pretty well-documented information. In the European Union, it's illegal to raise kids on a, a vegan diet. It's considered child abuse. Yet, interestingly, the American uh, Council of, of Dietetics, they they have a position statement that says that ve- vegetarian and vegan diets are appropriate throughout the totality of the lifespan, but yet there is no good research suggesting that a vegan diet is appropriate for children, yet yet they they make the recommendation that, that it is appropriate. Um, and this gets interesting when we start talking about like, social justice issues and access and stuff like that, because a poor family living at the margins, they are not necessarily going to be able to go into Walgreens and, and buy a bottle of EPA DHA extracted from, or or DHA extracted from algae and like the appropriate, like uh, iron supplement and zinc supplement and B vitamin supplements. And we're not even talking about like developing countries where there are no CVSs on on every other corner and stuff like that. So this was some of the stuff that on the health front that we ended up, you know, tackling one, the claims that there were all these deleterious associations, you know, diabetes and obesity and and whatnot. It's just really not there. And we in the book and, and also the film, it provides you an opportunity to really lay this stuff out in kind of a stepwise process. And then there's also this greater health uh, story at both the beginning of life and then later in life, um, people who have more animal products, people who have higher protein intake fare better like that. That's a fairly obvious thing within this whole story. So that, you know, it starts changing the ethical consideration a little bit. If you can't raise humans in a way that, that doesn't cause them damage without animal products, then what? is the ethical consideration there? Like, is it ethical to not feed humans animal products? Like it it starts getting kind of interesting. And then on the environmental side, I assume we'll probably, probably jump over to the, to the environment and and sustainability. Yeah. Roll right into. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a couple of different bullet points that are usually mentioned around that. And again, like, uh, uh, our book started off at 600 pages long and it got whittled down to 300 pages. I think the editors did a really good job on this, but, 
I would encourage people to not believe anything that I say here. I would really encourage them to check out the book and the movie and then to read the primary citations that we have in there. Like, I just can't go into the detail. The level of detail that I can do in a, a situation like this um, is barely above like a sales pitch from like a pharmaceutical company. You know, it's like, ask your doctor if the Levitra is right for you or whatever. You know, it it's yeah. piss poor. But what I would implore people to do is just create a crack in your consciousness that there might be something to this. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying this stuff is accurate. I think it is, but I could also be totally wrong. But this also isn't the 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 format for being able to do a super detailed thing and like, you know, check on the the research and all that stuff. But the the big considerations that are raised around animal husbandry as it relates to like sustainability and and global health, climate change and whatnot. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, water usage, and then also the reallocation of resources like food that is fed to animals that are mm -hmm. could ostensibly be fed to other human beings. So the greenhouse gas emission piece is probably the biggest bugaboo right now. And the interesting thing about this is when I do this discussion with children, they get it immediately, like they understand it immediately. And when I do it with adults, it's still just uh, it, it's. It just doesn't click. And I've been trying to think about how to pare this thing down. So we're going we're gonna to look at a single plant. We're just going to look at a plant that's growing. Um, let's just say it's a piece of sawgrass or something, you know, something that animals can and do eat. But you've got a single plant. And when that plant is growing, it's got roots that go below the ground. And those roots that go below the ground are communicating with bacteria and fung fungi, Um Part of what the plant does is it takes carbon out of the atmosphere using the photosynthetic process, using solar energy to take carbon dioxide and stitch it together into carbohydrates and lipids and proteins. And some of that stuff goes underground and it helps to feed the bacteria and fungi. And that actually becomes part of what topsoil is. It's the, the mineral and carbon combination that the the plant and its symbiotic organisms create. And this is why really healthy grasslands have multiple meter deep topsoil, because this process just kind of keeps going and going. It slows down over time, but uh, really healthy prairie grasslands will have grasses that maybe grow waist high, but have root beds that, that grow 15 or 20 feet deep. And this is, you know, it's holding water, it's holding carbon, it's got this whole massive ecosystem underground. But again, circling back, this whole process is driven by solar energy from the sun and from the plant capturing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turning it into plant material. Now, the fate of that plant material could go in a couple of different directions. If an organism eats it, it will either be broken down directly and then become part of its, its, you know, say like glycogen storage. And then when the animal moves, it will be combusted uh, metabolically and converted into carbon dioxide and water. If it is broken down via bacterial fermentation, which is what happens with most of these kind of cellulose-based things, like humans and not even cattle can directly access this stuff. The, the cattle and termites and whatnot need to use a, a symbiotic relationship with bacteria to do cellulosic fermentation. It's worth mentioning too, the breakdown of grass doesn't feed cattle carbohydrates. It feeds them fat. It makes short chain saturated fat. So herbivores are fat fueled, not carbohydrate fueled for the most part. That's just kind of a interesting aside. But in that process, carbon dioxide and also methane are produced. 
And this methane is one of the things that people really go crazy about because methane is a greenhouse gas, as is carbon dioxide, as is water vapor. Um, but that methane has a life cycle or, or a, a half-life of about 10 years. So once it gets out in the atmosphere, it will eventually get broken down via its interaction with UV radiation and the environment, and it'll get converted into carbon dioxide and water. And then that carbon dioxide will get taken up eventually by a plant. And so the, the point being is that this greenhouse gas story, as it relates to life, is a cycle. It, it, the other things that could happen to this plant is that it could fall over and die, and it could get covered over and composted, in which case it will make methane and carbon dioxide, or it could go through oxidative breakdown where the sunlight basically breaks it down, becomes very dry and brittle. And again, the, the ultimate manifestation is that this stuff will get converted into carbon dioxide and water. But the, the, that uh, oxidative process is a very long, drawn out kind of scenario. But the thing is, is that this is part of a cycle. The carbon as methane that is a greenhouse gas today in 10 or 20 years will be underground as as part of the root matrix or it'll be part of the plant matrix or what have you but all of this is getting accounted for the same way that uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions come out of tailpipes and jet engines and this is insanity they are not part of the the same deal what our, our uh, energy production uh, transportation whatnot this is mining carbon deposits that have been underground for hundreds of millions of years and then releasing them into the atmosphere and that's a whole other interesting side note, too. Like if people do a little bit of poking around, it appears that the planet is greening with higher carbon dioxide levels. Plants grow better. Like before pot became legalized in all these places, people would would create uh, uh, greenhouses where they would have carbon dioxide canisters attached to their greenhouse to increase the carbon dioxide content of their plants to be able to make them grow faster. So, and I'm not saying that that's a hundred percent solution in this, but it's a really complex process. And it, what's interesting further on that, and I know we're kind of getting a little short on time, but it, it's hard to unpack this stuff in a really succinct fashion, but two thirds of the world's landmass are grasslands. They're amenable for nothing other than growing grass and the co-evolutionary you know, an element of grazing animals on that land. If these grasslands are not grazed, they desertify. They can also desert, and which basically they, all the plant mass, you know, largely disappears and it starts looking like Las Vegas. Um, 150 years ago, the, uh, the Great Basin, the area from Las Vegas to Reno to Salt Lake City was a grassland, but it got overgrazed. So, it, 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 too much animal impact on an environment can damage it and, and turn it into desert. Too little animal activity in the area can desertify it and, and convert it. So we need this kind of middle ground. And this is where some, some things like holistic management and, and mob grazing can be really powerful in this story. And in the film, Diana documents an example of a rancher down in the Chihuahuan Desert who has converted a million acres of Chihuahuan desert back into grassland. And it is crazy because there are people that have lived there for five generations. And they had no idea that the area could support grass. It, it's just been desertified for an incredibly long time. But it, when you're driving out there, you're driving for five, six hours from the airport. And then you start seeing this, what looks like a tidal wave on the, on the horizon and it's chest high grass. 
And this stuff is sequestering carbon. It is holding water. It's created this really vibrant ecosystem. And it's a greenhouse gas emitter because it releases methane and it releases carbon dioxide. But again, this is part of a natural cycle. And so this this whole story is really challenging because we have become so myopically focused just on greenhouse gas emissions, absent any context and absent some knowledge around these these greater kind of cyclical elements that uh, we're vilifying anything that's a greenhouse gas emitter. And it, just as an aside, um, it's re- more recently been discovered that shellfish produce enormous amounts of methane, termites produce enormous amounts of methane, and this terror around greenhouse gas emissions have caused people to suggest that we should eradicate termites and shellfish to save the planet because of the greenhouse gas you know, emissions, which is in, insanity. And again, kids usually get this, but oftentimes when I describe this to adults, they're like, I'm still missing something here and I'm just kind of at a loss to, to explain it. I mean, the, the, real, the, the real long and short of it is that some people are suggesting that less life on the planet would be better to protect the loss of life on the planet, which is ultimately what the the big anxiety is around climate change, that we're going to so damage the ecosystem that that nothing's going to be able to survive. Um, it, but the, the interesting thing, again, around that, I didn't do a great job of tying this in. There's the suggestion or the, the understanding that properly managed grazing animals may be the only solution that we have to desertification, that these healthy grasslands reduce the heat albedo on the land so they don't retain as much heat. They disperse uh, uh, the heat much better. Um, they provide habitat and food and all these other things. And it's impossible to to make those things happen without animal husbandry input. So there's there's the argument, um, you know, from the health perspective, uh, you, you know, that becomes dubious and actually uh, gets an interesting moral or ethics consideration can we feed humans properly without animal products? And the answer may be no. And then on this uh, environmental and regenerative ag and sustainability side, can we actually have a sustainable food system without animal products? Because if we don't have animal product input, what we're left with is row crop synthetic chemical fertilizer inputs. That's what we're left with because you can't make this stuff work without animals otherwise. And Everybody acknowledges that that is unsustainable. We will not be, if humanity is still here in a thousand or 5,000 years, the way that we're doing a synthetic row crop uh, food production is is not going to be happening. And we're also, as an aside, we're not going to be growing all of our food in a vat. Like the, the energy and the thermodynamics of that just really don't work. So if it's arguably impossible to have proper human health without the raising of animals, and if we can't have a sustainable food system that could go on indefinitely without animals, then we, we get to that ethics consideration. The main thing that we're left with is that the animals that are being raised in this food system should be taken very good care of and they should not be abused and they shouldn't be you know, hurt. They should have the best life that they, they could. But the argument that we shouldn't you know, eat or kill animals starts losing a lot of impact, particularly because when we circle back around, the industrial row crop food system kills enormous amounts of animals. It displaces all kinds of uh, rodents and, and insects and birds and reptiles. It is not a bloodless affair. 
So it was, it was interesting writing the book in that we really tried to take a very evidence-based systems approach to this whole topic. And what was interesting was that everything kept pointing back to a very grass-centric model of our food production. And it's not to say that we don't have agriculture. It's not to say that we don't have grains, but historically, this has been part of a cycle. Whereas what we've done more recently is we've split all this stuff out. And economists will say that this is a really efficient system. And it is so long as you ignore all of the externalities, like the damage to our waterways and you know the other problems that we see in all this stuff. So I don't know if I did a great job on on all that. It's a big, gnarly, uh, you know, mass to untangle, but hopefully it's enough to at least pique the interest of folks. And if they check out uh, the the website sacredcow.info, they can get access to both the book and the film there. And and I really encourage people to at least kick the tires on this idea that there's much more to the story than what what initially meets the eye. Yeah, I think it was from you guys where I had heard there's something like 60 soil life cycles left uh, if we're keep if we keep going down this path and it's like if the cows aren't on the lands to poop and then stomp on it and then it turns you know co- gets composted and turns into good soil and the plants aren't there it's like this whole thing is just going down a really bad path yeah so yeah the idea of a systems approach to it um, I mean, it makes sense to me. It obviously makes sense to you, uh, which is why you did the book and the, and the movie. But um, this is why I think people need to be looking into this because it's not just simply it's wrong to kill animals or it's, you know, y- you cows fart too much. It's like the pandemic when everyone stopped commuting. I mean, we saw a huge drop off in, in greenhouse emissions, right? So right. it's like right. animals have been here longer than us and the earth will be here after us fine. yeah right yeah exactly yeah all right so yeah let's wrap up because i know you got to go um so sacredcow.info mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. uh, where else can where else can people find you i do a lot of writing for element so drinkelement.com, and we have a really robust blog over there and it, it covers way way more than just electrolytes we get into uh, should you fast? If you do fast for how long, under what circumstances, what's really the goal in there? Um, low carb versus ketogenic diets. Like we really are starting to expand out and try to cover the, the totality of, uh, we have a tagline health through hydration, the hydration we've kind of gotten bu- buttoned up pretty good, but health is a really broad topic. And there's a lot of important moving parts to that, that we're starting to branch more broadly into. Very cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks for your time, Rob. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hopefully people check all this out because it's plenty to dive into. Thank you. And uh, let me know the next time you want me to bring down some property values on the show. (laughs) Fair enough. Out of our six listeners. Mm -hmm.